I'm Bobby Smith, and I'm going to be your 10 o'clock teacher. Invariably, when you prepare a whole hour and 10 minutes, you get 40 minutes. So here we go. <laughs> um, I always like to, um, when possible, as um, James said when he was uh, in Acts 15, speaking to the, um, to the council there, that the Torah is taught each and every Shabbat in the synagogues. So I always like to teach the Torah when I get the opportunity to teach at 10 o'clock. So um, this week's Torah portion is Barashat or, or Parsha Balak. So before we begin, let's start with a prayer. Avinu Shabbat our Father in heaven. Father, thank you for this Shabbat day, for the opportunity for all of us to be able to be here this morning, for the opportunity to hear your word. Father, I pray that um, I will be minimalized and you will be maximized in this teaching this morning, that your word will, be, um, will touch each and everyone here in the way that you want to touch each and everyone here. Open our hearts and our minds to hear what you have for us today, my Father. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so Balak is Numbers 22... 2 through 25, 9. It's um, uh, this week's Torah portion. I have to give credits before I get started because a lot of this work that, uh, that I give you is not mine. Uh, FFOZ, Torah Clubs, 1 in 5, J.K. McKee in his commentary on Galatians, the Art Scroll Hamash, and I'm using some of Tim Hegg's Torah commentary this morning. Balak was the name of a Moabite king in the days of Moses. This week's Torah portion tells us the story of how Balak hires the occult prophet Balaam to lay a curse on Israel. Balaam meets resistance from God, has a conversation with his donkey, and he ends up blessing Israel instead of cursing Israel. The invasion of Moab is what begins Numbers 22, um, 1. Balak was king over the Moabites a people descended from Abraham's nephew, Lot. Or, the correct Hebrew pronunciation of that is Lot. King Balak was a vassal of the Amorite king, Sihon. When the Israelites arrived in the Moabite territory, Sihon led his armies out to meet them. But he suffered a crushing defeat. The Amorites were completely toppled by the Israelites. The Israelites camped on the plains of Moab across from the Jordan River from the Canaanite city of Jericho. King Balak assumed that it was only a matter of time until the invading horde turned their attention toward him and his people. From Balak's point of view, the Israelite invasion seemed like certain doom. His fears, though, were needless. The Lord had already warned Israel not to harass the Moabites, or provoke them to war. The Lord, Lord told them, I will not give you any of their land as a possession because I have given Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession in Deuteronomy 2.9. The children of Israel were only passing through Balak's territory, but the Moabite king did not know this. The king surveyed the host of Israel who had set up their tents on the plains of Moab. They looked like an innumerable host Hundreds of thousands of invaders would alarm any monarch. 
The sons of Abraham and the sons of Lot. Numbers 22.4, the Moabites were descendants of Lot. The Israelites, descendants of Abraham. Abraham and Lot originally parted company because of this type of situation. Genesis 13.5-6, Lot, was, who was traveling with Abraham, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the land could not support their living together because their possessions were too great for them to remain together. The deeds of the fathers are portents of the sons. Balak, the son of Lot, looked out over the sons of Abraham and declared, Behold, they cover the surface of the land. Just as the herdsmen of Abraham and Lot quarreled over insufficient pasture, Balak feared the sons of Abraham would consume Moab's resources. Even with the assistance of the Midianite allies, Balak knew that he did not have sufficient military strength to challenge the host of Israel. He resorted to sorcery. Balak sent his man to the home of the prophet and sorcerer Balaam to hire him to come to put a curse on the Israelites. Balaam was a renowned prophet. Who was this Balaam? A cursory reading of this story might lead a person to believe that Balaam was a fairly decent fellow. He apparently knew the Lord, consulted with him, and attempted to obey his instructions. Rather than cursing Israel, Balaam blessed Israel three times. He seems to have been a God-fearing person, so to speaking only what God put in his mouth. He says, whatever the Lord speaks, that I must do. The impression of Balaam does not match the descriptions of him that arise from traditional Judaism. When commenting on the Balaam story, the sages of the Torah have plenty of nasty things to say about Balaam, casting him in the worst possible light. They ascribe all sorts of immorality and lewdness to him. Yeshua refers to those who eat food sacrificed to idols and commits and, and who commits acts of sexual immorality as disciples of Balaam. Peter, Kepha, compares false prophets with men like Balaam. Jude, the brother of the master, makes a similar comparison. He gives several examples of the worst type of godliness people that appear in the Torah, including Cain, Korah, and Balaam, men who are exhibited, exhibited as an example of the undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Balaam was not a prophet of God. He was a sorcerer. Tim Hegg describes Balaam. Balaam is a friend or foe, prophet or sorcerer, worship of Israel's God or a pawn of the evil one. The sages almost universally consider Balaam as evil. The problem is plain. On the one hand, Balaam is involved in what appears to be sorcery, while on the other hand, he's engaged in conversation with God and appears to submit to his demands. What is more, God apparently puts words in his mouth, much like he does his own prophets. Yet in the end, Balaam gives counsel to Balak, which brings about Israel's demise. He clearly acts as an enemy of Israel. In scripture, Balaam is clearly portrayed as evil and as Israel's enemy. In Joshua, Peter, Jude, and Revelation, God makes it clear to Balaam that the people of Israel are blessed. 
meaning that he has blessed them. Balak's request to Balaam is therefore construed in our text as a request to overcome the work of the Almighty. This likewise is the strategy of Hasatan. Balaam is involved in the world of spirits, for he is called a diviner. So we wonder why a sorcerer would have access to God. We know this parallels the activities of Hasatan, who also obtains an audience with God. Josh, is that me? What's that? Um, it's because I move? Okay. So, Hasatan also has an audience with, with, with God. It's obvious that Balaam has limits to his power and his knowledge, just like Satan has limits to his power and knowledge. His knowledge of God is vastly deficient, for he seems unaware of the existence of Israel as God's people. How could he understand who God truly is without the knowledge of God's people, Israel? One could know about God as the creator and ruler of the universe through the created world, just with all the things around us. But one could not know about God as the only true living God except through contact with Israel. Apart from the contact with Israel and her Torah, one could not know how he intended to be worshipped or approached. It is clear that Balaam is not informed about God through the special revelation. He has given to Israel, and he could not therefore be a true worshipper of God. We should conclude that Balaam is a pagan diviner who, was di who has directed connections, who has direct connections to the spiritual world, but who has himself been deceived by the true nature of Israel's God. He, like the demons themselves, knows that the God of Israel is all-powerful and controls all things, but he seems unaware of the covenant-making nature of God. Numbers 22.6, he says, Please come curse our pe these people. King Balak wanted Balaam to come and place a curse on the Israelites. The Lord wanted Balaam not to participate. Balak did not realize the nation of Israel was already under God's blessing, and anyone who attempts to curse them brings a curse down upon themselves. As Balak prepared to issue withering curses against Israel, he actually invited curses upon himself and his people. Balak sent the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian to entreat Balaam as if he were entering into negotiations with a head of state. The Midianites were a semi-nomadic people who also claimed Abraham as an ancestor. Midian was the son of Abraham's wife, Keturah. Since then, the Midianites appeared in the Torah as the merchant caravan that purchased Joseph from his brothers and bore him to Egypt. Moses also lived among a clan of Midianites. His wife, Zipporah, was a Midianite, and his father-in-law, Jethro, was a priest of Midian. Joshua 13.21 explains that the elders of Midian were Ebi, Rakim, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the princes of Sion. Apparently, Sion had appointed the five Midianite warlords 
as administrators over the Moabite territory he had conquered. The story of Balaam offers further evidence that not everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is necessarily a good guy. Now, I don't see how I'm moving. Maybe it's from here. Well, we'll change mics in a minute if it keeps up. So, but he's not a good guy. It is possible to have knowledge of God and even suppose that God is on my side while at the same time behaving quite godlessly. Christian history has endless examples of zealous men who believe they were doing God a favor by persecuting his people. Balaam was the forerunner. He taught God talk, but his heart was full of malice and greed. Many will say to me on that day, as, as Yeshua said in Matthew 7, 22-23, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Balaam is like the patron saint of spiritual pride. As we will see in the story, Spiritual pride equals spiritual blindness. He considered himself a premier prophet of God. He referred to himself proudly as the man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, Balaam was the model of spiritual pride. He presumed to have God figured out. He, was suppo he supposed that he had a corner on the truth and revelation. The story of Balaam demonstrates how it is possible to be utterly self-deceived about one's relationship with God. Let me give you a different mic. Thank you. <laughs> testing, testing. Sorry about this. Testing, can you can y'all hear me? It doesn't sound as loud as the other. It don't sound like I got a mic. I know y'all can hear me because I got a loud voice. It's on? It's on green here. You just want to use this mic here? Just use that, this. I mean, this is all I need. Y'all with me? <laughs> the negotiations in Numbers 22:12. Balaam took the warning from God and declined Balak's offer. King Balak sent a group of messengers more prestigious than the first and offered more money. This time, the Lord relented and said to him, Go with them, but only the word which I speak to you shall you speak. Balaam was overjoyed at the prospect of making a fortune. He saddled up his donkey and set out immediately, with every intention of cursing Israel. 
Balaam had no intention of carry out, carrying out God's instructions. He only intended to curse Israel and earn King Balak's reward. The heart is deceitful. We can easily convince ourselves that we are doing God's will when we are doing just the opposite. It is especially easy to delude ourselves when we have some spiritual or biblical pretense to justify our selfishness. Balaam could say to himself that he was obeying God's word by going with the men of Moab, but in reality he was only serving greed. The apostolic community considered Balaam as an example of a man who misuses religious authority for his own profit. Balaam erred when he obeyed his greed rather than the Lord. Though God strictly warned Balaam to speak only what he was told, Balaam intended to curse Israel and earn the house full of gold and silver that Balak had offered him. The Lord knew that Balaam was on his way to Moab with the intention of cursing Israel. Three times the Lord blocked Balaam's path, which corresponds with the three attempts at cursing Israel. When he arrived in Moab, he tried to lay a withering curse on Israel three times. Each time he tried, the Lord blocked his curse by changing it into a blessing. Life is full of irritating obstacles that get in the way of our plans. Throughout any given day, a person experiences countless distractions and complications. It's easy to become impatient and upset with the things and people that get in the way of what we are trying to accomplish. We should learn a lesson from Balaam. Those irritating obstacles may be from the Lord. God may have other plans for us. People of faith sometimes speak of God opening and closing doors. This is an idiom that refers to God's divine direction in life. For example, suppose a person set out to take a job in a certain field. He submitted an application for a position for which he was fully qualified. He was confident that the job would be his. Inexplicably, he did not get the position. A person like Balaam would become bitter over the disappointment. A person of faith would say, God closed that door. He knows what's best. I will look elsewhere. The way we treat animals reveals a lot about our hearts. Balaam expressed his true heart by ruthlessly beating his helpless donkey with a stick. In Jewish law, a person is required to show compassion for animals under his care. Tradition requires a man feed his animal, animals before he sits down to eat. A talking donkey. We should never argue with a donkey. The miracle of the talking donkey is not just for amusement. It's an illustration to prepare us for the passages of Torah that are about to follow. In Numbers 23-24, Balaam inadvertently speaks a series of blessings and prophecies over the people of Israel. Balaam's prophecies are directly from God. He could speak through the wicked. How could God speak through the wicked sorcerer Balaam? The lesson of the talking donkey illustrates that God is not limited to using only righteous men to deliver his messages. If he can use the mouth of a donkey to get his message across, he can use the mouth of a wicked man like Balaam. The angel of the Lord blocked Balaam's path three times. The donkey could see the angel, but Balaam could not. We are surrounded by a world of spiritual realities that are invisible to our human eyes. 
Once the servant of Elisha, the prophet, was startled to see the city of Dothan was surrounded by an enemy army. The servant panicked, but Elisha answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then he prayed that the servant's eyes might be opened to see this spiritual reality. The Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw the Lord's army of hosts, horses and chariots of fire, surrounded the prophet. After opening the donkey's mouth so that it could speak, God opened Balaam's eyes so that he could see the angel too. Just because we cannot see the spiritual does not mean that we should, not, that we should be unaware of its presence. We cannot see the wind, but it is real nonetheless and has visible effects on the material world. Although the spiritual world is invisible to our eyes, it is all around us. When Balaam saw that the angel of the Lord, he admitted his sinful intention and offered to turn back. The Lord instructed him to continue on his way to Moab, but he warned him, You shall speak only the words which I tell you. Balaam agreed to these terms, but he still hoped to be able to curse Israel. King Balak welcomed the esteemed prophet with sacrifices of oxen and sheep. But to whom did he sacrifice them? The book of Numbers has already reminded us that the Moabites worship the god Chemosh. The Bible refers to Chemosh as the detestable Isle of Moab. One would expect the king of Moab to offer his sacrifices to the god of Moab. Balaam understood the situation better than Balak. Chemosh, Baal, and the Baal of Peor were of no assistance. He ordered seven altars built with seven rams and seven bulls offered on them as a sacrifice to the Lord. Balaam hoped to mollify the anger deity, the angry deity that had nearly decapitated him the previous day. He reasoned that seven sacrifices might change God's mind about the whole cursing thing. Balaam delivered these oracles. Balaam's oracles are a very interesting peek into the realm of spiritual warfare. There is a real battle, and we are in the midst of it. If we look closely at the Balaam oracles, we learn some important things about this battle. Numbers 23, 7 through 10, set apart to God. God chose Israel that sets her apart. Those whom God is for will be blessed. So the most, most foundational question to ask in life is simply this. Is God for me? God is for his son, Yeshua. All who are identified with his son, Yeshua, the, in the beloved one, and may be assured that they themselves, in God's sight, are beloved and therefore recipients of his ultimate blessing. The sovereign act of God, whereby he chooses to place his love and blessing upon Israel, causes her to be set apart from other people. God's constant protection of Israel assures her longevity. After describing his target, Balaam was supposed to deliver a decimating curse upon them. It should be spelled out some nasty, horrid death for the Israelites. Something like a plague or starvation or military defeat would have sufficed for Balak's purposes. Instead, Balaam saw the reward of the righteous he said, let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his. The second oracle was in Numbers 23, 18 through 24. 
victorious in God's faithfulness. Israel will be victorious because God is faithful. God is known by his eternal truthfulness. In God's faithfulness, the covenant is given and maintained. From God's standpoint, Israel is beloved for the sake of their fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The Lord explained to Balak, through Balaam, why Israel cannot be cursed. He has already promised to bless them. God is not fickle. Having already promised to bless Israel, he will not reverse himself. Unlike human beings, God's integrity is absolute. We are in a covenant relationship with God. One of the things you learn when you first come into Messianic Judaism is covenant, covenant relationship. If you took the Hyasod class or if you take Rabbi Scott's, um, what's he call his class? It's, it, his introduction class or whatever. That's one of the first things that we learn is, is a covenantal relationship. Covenants are forever. When we take Torah Club 1 or the, maybe Tim Hegg's thing, you learn of, of an example of a covenant we have is marriage. When we enter into a marriage relationship, that's a serious thing. It's, it's to, to be forever. Israel had a covenant relationship, has a covenant relationship with God that is forever. Numbers, the third oracle was in Numbers 24, 3 through 9. Israel is blessed by God. The covenant blessings are likewise emphasized in the third oracle. Once again, Balaam refers to directly to the blessings given to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and the one cursing you I will curse. This divine promise of blessing thus extends to the other nations in regard to how they relate to Israel. In the end, it will be seen that she is blessed above the nations, not because of anything she accomplished by her own strength, but because God has maintained his faithfulness to her. Israel's glory is in her being set apart by living out the Torah. And we should be reminded at this point that the Israel Balaam sees and blesses is a mixed multitude, meaning that Israel includes those of the nations who have joined themselves to her. The native-born and the sojourner together constitute Israel. Thus, God is for Israel, and any who would deserve her will therefore deal with him. Any who would destroy her will therefore deal with him. As Israel walks in the, in the, in the ways of the covenant, she may be assured of divine protection. The third attempt at cursing Israel corresponds to the third time the Lord blocked Balaam's way. Just as the donkey lay down under Balaam, refusing to go any further, so too the Lord intervened a third time, forcing Balaam to speak a third blessing over Israel. On that third encounter with the donkey, the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel blocking his path. It is an allusion to this event. The third oracle begins with Balaam referring to himself as the man whose eyes were opened, and one who sees the vision of the Almighty. After the almost absurd introduction, the oracle gets serious. Balaam's description of Israel has become a permanent part of Jewish liturgy. This is known as the uh, um, Matovu. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. There's a prayer in the uh, Siddur that um, it gives us when we enter the synagogue. 
that we are to pray the Matavu. I'll do it at the end. In an attempt to describe his vision of the encampments of Israel, Balaam launched into a four-line series simile that describes Israel as a lush, well-watered garden with alloys and cedars planted by the water. The image alludes back to Genesis 13. In that passage, Lot, or Lot, the forefather of Moab, quarreled with Abraham, the forerunner of Israel, over pasture land. Now things had come full circle as the descendants of Abraham are camped on the plains of Moab beside the Jordan River. God goes before Israel like the horns of the wild ox. The Bible uses the term horns of a wild ox to depict strength, proudness, and power. The horns are the fearsome beast gore and tear anyone foolish enough to get in its way. So too the Lord goes before Israel goring and topping anyone who would oppose the people. Balaam ended the third oracle with a final concise statement that summarizes all three failed attempts at cursing Israel. Those who attempt to curse the children of Israel, the children of Abraham, find themselves cursed. Number, numbers 24, 15 through 19 gives us a glimpse of the promised Messiah. Balaam speaks of the coming Messiah, the scepter of Jacob. Israel is therefore promised ultimate victory, not by her own power, but by the hand of Messiah. The Messiah alone is able to bring the covenant to its final and glorious end. Israel's final hope is in him. The scepter alludes back to Jacob's prophecy over Judah in Genesis 49. That passage speaks of a Davidic throne as the scepter that shall not depart from Judah. Balaam saw the scepter, scepter as, as the Davidic king who will rise out of Jacob like a star sometime in the distant future. He smashes the forehead of Moab, tearing down their people, conquering the Edomites, taking Seir as a possession. King David accomplished all these things. Ironically, King David's great-grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabite. Numbers five, or numbers 24, 20 through 24, Israel will be victorious. Throughout the course of history, the nations would attempt to overcome Israel, for defeating her is to defeat her God. Yet no nation will prevail against Israel. God will win the day. All the rage of the nations against his chosen people will come to naught, and the story of Balaam is a portrait of this. The Kenites were the Midianite tribe into which Moses had married. They attained an honorary place among Israel. Even though the Kenites were not in the crosshairs of the Israelite conquest, their destiny was not trouble-free. Cain will be consumed, Balaam declared. How long will Asher keep you captive, he asked. Asher is the Hebrew word for Assyria. Apparently, the Kenites went into captivity during the Assyrian siege of Israel and Judah, and they've never been heard, of, heard from since. The promised salvation comes by the hand of Yeshua, the shepherd of Israel. This is John 10, 27-30. My sheep listen to my voice. I recognize them. They follow me, and I give them eternal life. They will absolutely never be destroyed, and no one will snatch them from my hands. My Father 
who gave them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them from my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. There has always been those who appear to have a connection with God, who even appear to obey him, who in fact are the enemies of God and his people. Sometimes God's enemies are self-deceived into thinking that they can have a true relationship with the Almighty, while at the, while at the same time hating the cho his chosen people, the people of Israel. One cannot love the Father and hate his children. Since Balaam has no connection with Israel, he likewise has no knowledge of the Torah given to Israel. At the heart of worship is the recognition that God has entered into the covenant with one nation and with one nation only, the nation of Israel. The enemies of God, including the demonic powers of a diviner, Hasatan, are limited. In our text, even a dumb donkey is aware of the spiritual realities that Balaam is not. We err if we attribute Satan and his helpless powers of omniscience and omnipotent. They are, they are not all-knowing. They are not all-powerful. The remnant faithful of God's people is characterized by their willingness to humble themselves before God, to accept his ways and not their own, and to acknowledge their need for him. In doing so, they put themselves under his care and receive from him the protection and blessing of his promises. The biblical perspective on spiritual warfare is clear. Our weapons are not those of our own design, but consist of faith and faithfulness. Putting on the armor of the Lord means walking in obedience to him, following in the footsteps of our Messiah, realizing that he is our fortress, and that we are safe only if we live in the reality of him being our Messiah. King Balak was not pleased with Balaam's prophecies. The intended curse had turned into a blessing. When Balak heard the second series of blessings, he exclaimed, Do not curse them at all and do not bless them at all. Balaam ends the oracle with a summary of his three failed attempts at cursing Israel. After hearing this, King Balak was angry enough to throw Balaam off the mountain. He told him to leave and without pay. Balaam failed to curse Israel. Worse yet, he failed to win this large reward from Balak. Then a thought occurred to him. Perhaps he could not curse Israel, but he could induce Israel to curse themselves. In Numbers 31.16, we learn that he conspired with the Midianite and Moabite leaders and suggested a plan. He counseled them to not march out and make war against Israel. Instead, he advised, advised them to invite the men of Israel to a party hosted by the daughters of the Midianites and the Moabites. He told them to use their daughters as bait to lure the Israelite men into, into an, an idolatrous feast. The daughters of Moab invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. The appetite for food and sex ended in idolatry. It brings to mind the apostolic injunctions of the non-Jewish believers in Acts 15. Each of their four minimum requirements for fellowship prohibits from the arena of food, sexuality, and idolatry. Those four requirements are, are, take, are, are limiting those things. You can't be part of the ecclesia 
and commit those sins. Balak's wicked plan succeeded. He managed to finagle the nation into bringing a curse down upon its own head. The men of Israel were ensnared by the Midianite and Moabite women who had enticed them into idolatry. So the Lord struck Israel with a plague, and Moses ordered... Miss my talking donkey thing, I'm sorry. I gotta, I gotta watch the move in this. So Moses ordered the heads of the tribes to put to death any men involved in the worship of a Moabite god, the Baal of Peor. The Apostle John warned us against the lust of flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. The devil uses three temptations to, tri to um, trip up a man. Sexual lust, greed for money, and love of power. John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does God's will remains forever. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life may indeed be passing away, but that does not diminish their current allure. The sexual allure and inherent idolatry of the heathen world continues to entice believers and draws us away from a singular devotion to the Lord. To break free from the spell of sensuality and materialism takes a resolute pinkus-like zeal. When the Lord saw that the men of Israel were consorting with the Midianite daughters and worshiping their gods, he punished Israel with this terrible plague. 24,000 men died, far more than the Moabites and the Midianites could have hoped to slay in the battlefield. The plague against Israel was not stopped until Pincus, or Phineas, plunged his spear into Jimri and his Midianite partners. We need to show the ruthless zeal of Pincus or Phineas in our war against the lust of our own flesh. Romans 13, 13 through 14. Let us live properly as people do in the daytime, not partying and getting drunk, not engaging in sexual immorality and other excesses, not quarreling and being jealous. Instead, clothe ourselves with the Lord Yeshua the Messiah and don't waste your time thinking about how to provide for the sinful desires of your old nature. I thought that um, it would be good to talk about Shimrash Halashon because Balaam in his oracles was using words. And um, it's very important, I think, when you um, study Torah that you have some practicality, you know? So one of the things that, um, that's so important, one of the things that ruined the, uh, the Jewish people in, their second, in the, both the first temple and the second temple era, era was that they couldn't get along with one another. They, 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 they were, um, they were, they'd gone away from God in the way that they treated one another and they'd gone completely away from the Torah, and which is one of the main reasons why Yeshua, why Yeshua came, was to, was to right the ship, you know? Um, and one of the main reasons he came during that era. It's very important if you study what was going on in that era. Era. Shimrash Halashom means this. It's defined as the Torah's laws of speech, or God's laws of speech. When you hear the term Lashon Hura, that is when you've uh, transgressed those laws of speech. 
According to research, an average woman speaks 20,000 words a day. An average man speaks 7,000 words a day. Some of us are above and below those averages in here. I'm, I'm going to be speaking over 6,000 words up here this morning. It's amazing how much you, how much you, you speak. Shimrash Halasan constitute God's plans for how people should live with each other. They are tools that the Torah has given us to remove anger, bitterness, jealousy from our hearts, and to eliminate strife, hurt, and divisiveness from the Jewish people. When we examine the workings of our words, we come to see that they, more than any other human capacity, define us. What we say and how we say it is who we are. Angry, hurtful words define an angry, hurtful person. Kind, considerate words define a kind, considerate person. The laws of proper speech are Hashem's specific, practical directives for how to use this defining capacity. They teach us how to look at people, speak to people, and speak about people. They reflect the Torah's wisdom, which sees the impact and ripple effect of every negative interaction. The Torah understands that at the core of virtually every broken relationship, shattered career, or divorce is a seed of hatred, a seed usually planted by a hurtful word. The Torah's laws reflect Hashem's knowledge that much of the pain and anguish of life can be averted by restraining ourselves from sowing these seeds. It's really a simple principle. If one removes negativity, gossip, slander, and divisiveness from one's vocabulary, one automatically and dramatically improves one's own life and the lives of everyone around you. It is actually um, it's simple. The Lord teaches us that the words we choose determine how we experience our lives. By taking hold of our power of speech, we take hold of life itself. But Hashem does not simply hand us this tremendous power and leave us to discover how it works. He gives us detailed instructions in the form of the laws of Shimras Halashon. More than a body of halakha, Shimras Halashon is God's human relations training program that teaches us how to interact with others in the best possible way. One who follows it faithfully immediately perceives the work of divine intelligence reflecting Hashem's perfect understanding of human nature. The best way I know to get this concept is through this man right here, Kofetz Kaim. Kofetz Kaim has got this book. It's called A Lesson a Day in, in Shimrash Halashon. A lot of beautiful things happen when you get into this. One of the things is, is that you follow the Jewish calendar because it follows the Jewish calendar. And, and it actually goes through it uh, three times because there's not enough pages in the book to follow the calendar from the beginning to the end. So you actually go through the Jewish calendar three times when you're, when you're reading it. But each day, there's a, two pages, one on each side. There's a lesson. And within that lesson, it teaches you the, the laws of speech from the, um, from the master of uh, the laws of speech. So you keep hearing me say the Jews or the Jewish people. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, it says this. 
This is Paul talking to the Galatians. And as many as will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and peace be upon the Israel of God. Now what does Paul mean? Who is he referring to when he says the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16? How do people in today's messianic movement see the Israel of God? in Galatians 6.16. One of the difficulties for either modern-day dispensational Christians or messianic adherents to a bilateral ecclesiology. Now, these are very, very tough words for a little old southern boy. But it's important to know because um, within the messianic movement, there are those who's pre preaching this biblical ecclesiology. This is a theology that teaches that God has one people separated into two groups. The Jewish believers should be in their own groups keeping Torah and the Gentiles should be in the church. He is recognizing that Yeshua the Messiah never com he never communicated that his intentions was, found, was to found a second group of elect that we call the church. That was never his intention. So this stuff is, mo you know, it's, I've been, because of our apostolic scriptures class, I've been spending a lot of time learning a good bit about the messianic movement. And originally the messianic movement and messianic congregations would be formed by Jewish believers. And what happened was, it's just like in the original ecclesia, they get over flooded by us Gentiles. And that's kind of what's happened, you know. So just like the problems that they had in the first century of integrating with one another, we have the same issues going on today. The Messiah's intention was not to go out and build this separate congregation, but instead he came to bring about the restoration of Israel, something which is to affect both the Jewish people and the nations. There was never meant to be a replacement of the Jewish people but instead the expansion of Israel's kingdom incorporating the righteous of the nations. Believers are the Israel of God. God's people, God's Israel. So when you hear these lessons that are being taught that are, seems like they're directed at the Jewish people, they're directed at God's people. They're directed at you as well. When you hear the phrase in rabbinic teachings, fellow Jew or for the Jew, just remember, if you are a believer in Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah, then they're referring to you as much as they are natural-born Jews. Kofetz Kaim's lesson a day follows the Hebrew calendar so you can, can get these lessons, you can train yourself. You know, Steve is, is running our, um, our um, first responders and he's running our our security thing, you know, here. And one of the things he says all the time, and it's true, is train. You got to train. To really be good at something, you got to train. And that's what, and you have to live it and breathe it every day, you know. So if you're going to be good at something, you, you have to train. Next week, I'll be doing um, Pinkas. I get two weeks here, so I get two Torah portions. And I'm going to give you, today I gave you a little bit of Shemrash Halashon. Next week we'll, we'll go into this Imunah. I've been studying a lot about Imunah, and it's really, really good stuff.
If you follow the Jewish calendar, you will realize that today is Tammuz 17. Now what is the 17th of Tammuz? It's normally observed as a minor fast day. There's a lot of stuff going on today. There's a lot of things happening today. This minor fast day is uh, eating and drinking. Uh, you limit your eating and drinking. But you know what? You don't do that on a Shabbat. So you, don't, you wouldn't do it, do it today. But if it's fallen on a regular day, it would be, it, we would be doing that. Um, the 17th of Tumuz, keep, or Tumuz kicks off the um, three weeks leading up to the ninth of Av, Tishba, Tish, Tisha B'Av. That commemorates one of the most sad events in Jewish history, the destruction of the temples, both of them being destroyed on the, seventh, on the uh, ninth of Av. I don't have a lot of time to go into the there's a whole teaching, you could go a whole hour on, on, on this, and Rabbi Rene does a good job when he does the um, um, Rosh Kadesh services. Um, I would like to give you a quick story from Kofatz Kaim's book that gives you kind of an example of parables that, he, that he'll use. Reuben was born, bore ill will toward his neighbor Shimon. Shimon, let's say it that way. And he made a habit of speaking disparagingly of Shimon. One day, Yehuda, a respected man from his, for, for his truthfulness, tells Reuben, I was recently present when Shimon paid a visit to Rabbi Yosef, a leading Torah sage of the generation, who is known for his great wisdom and piety. The sage accorded Shimon with great honor and showed him genuine love. After witnessing this, my friend, I must conclude that your opinion of Shimon is grossly incorrect. After digesting this information for a few moments, Reuben responds, it may well be that I am mistaken. My conviction that Shimon was wrong, has wronged me may be due to man's natural inclination to see himself as correct in any dispute. On the other hand, it may be that Shimon is so clever and deceiving that he is able to, to deceive even a sage into thinking, thinking he's upright and righteous. In other words, your report has given me reason for thought, but I'm not fully convinced. In any case, I'll cease speaking disparagingly of Shimon, at least for now. Reuben's response indicates only the beginning of a change in attitude. As our parable continues, we shall see with a proper outlook, it is possible for one's attitude towards others to undergo a complete transformation. Sometime later, Yehuda tells Reuben, I was privileged to be present when Shimon met with the sages of the Mishnah, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Meir, and others, men endowed with divine inspiration, who are akin to angels and cannot possibly be deceived. I saw too how they accorded Shimon great honor and showed him deep love and admiration. A shaken Reuben responds, I have erred. Obviously, it was my evil inclination that caused me to bear ill will to Shimon. Woe is me. I have harbored ill will and spoken against someone who is loved by Hashem. I now see things in a different light. I deeply regret, regret my feelings and actions and will strive to develop a true love for Shimon.
So I'll end this with, um, with the Ma Tobu, which was um, um, the prayer that the Jewish people have attributed to Balaam. How good are your tents, tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. It is through your abundant love that I enter your home and bow in awe in the direction of your holy temple, which is to the east. Adonai, I love the temple, your home and the place where your glory dwells. I will bow down and prostrate myself before Adonai, my creator. May my prayer find favor in your sight, Adonai. In the abundance of your loving kindness, answer me with the truth of your salvation. So even from a sorcerer, a prophet that was not of God, came a great prayer for the Jewish people that we are to say as we enter into his synagogue or in, into his temple. So next week, like I said, I'll be doing Pinchas. And the uh, uh, last little part of that, I'll be doing uh, Iminah. And I hope you all come back for that. So let's, let's end this with, with a prayer. Alvinu Malkenu, our Father, our King. Father, thank you for this glorious morning. Thank you for allowing me to, um, to give your word through you, through me. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for um, giving me the energy, time to be able to prepare this and to, to do this. Father, I pray that everyone here will be touched by you. And I pray that, that as we go out into the world, Father, that each and every person that comes in contact with us sees you and us in all that we do. In Yeshua's precious name I pray. Amen.